Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cappy Productions. Today's episode is brought to you by the musical stylings of After Dark. They have fantastic music. It always reminds me of pop music from the 90s in the best way. It's so comforting and wonderful. And I happen to know the artists. And they have been very supportive and are sponsoring today's show. And I couldn't appreciate them more. So go to Spotify, look up After Dark. It'll be the one that has the song Colors and Breakaway. And oh my goodness, they're just so fantastic. I'm so excited for you to hear them. So big thank you to After Dark, and here we go. Hello, and welcome back to the Conquest of Bliss. I am here with the lovely Joe Meyer. How are you today, Joe? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm pretty fantastic and excited to talk to you today. So can you? we'll just get started by jumping into, tell me a little bit about your research. Sure. So... Uh, by trade, I got my PhD in early American literature. So authors mostly in what we would call the American Renaissance phase, like Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Emily Dickinson, that kind of area. But I'm also uh, interested in my research in heroism, heroic narratives. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by, recently, the pull of historical movements and how that sort of shapes our culture, the way we interact with each other, even including to how we, how it's sort of the end of postmodernism has okay. Can you explain gone post- right into this. Postmodernism yeah, sure. as a concept real quick. Of course, right? Because postmodernism is a term that a lot of people throw out there and very few actually say what the heck it is. Yeah, I've heard so, it so many times. And I've never- <laughs> let, me, let me break it down and make it really simple, right? Um, postmodernism roughly takes place between the end of World War II until, well, uh, kind of disputed. Scholars are still, we're trying to work through when it, when it sort of ends. Okay. But historical movements don't really end on a specific date, mm-hmm. really. So that's fine. I would roughly put it around somewhere around probably uh, 2001 to 2004 or five. Oh, see, honestly. I was thinking late 90s. I'm so excited. Well, yeah, no, you're, you're right. Because there is a, a cultural shift there, which we can talk about uh, a little bit later on as well. Kind of what, how the superhero kind of helps us start to transition into our current phrase called neo-modernism. But postmodernism is essentially a reaction to modernism, which happens right up until um, like World War I, all the way up until kind of through World War II. And postmodernism is all about skepticism. Mm, that makes sense. That's the key word here, right? So think about our culture, just in the culture that we've grown up in, in general. A lot of it is based on skepticism, but more specifically, skepticism of things like grand narratives. Anything that can try to explain Mm -hmm. the way that something is. So we're skeptical of any specific culture being, being the culture. We're skeptical of institutions, right? To a degree, governments, religions. We're skeptical of anything that tries to tell us this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. This is truth. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. A lot of times when people talk about postmodernism today, mm-hmm. it's done in a very negative light. People are like, oh, all this anger and contention that we're seeing today is because, uh, you know, postmodern this and that. Okay. Part of what I'm trying to do in the classroom and even just out anywhere is to say, stop hating historical movements. <laughs> There's nothing there. It's not an entity. You take good parts of historical movements Mm -hmm. and you take the bad parts and you get rid of the bad 
Yeah, and then the you've good. got your next historical movement. Absolutely, right? <clears throat> Every historical movement you can think of as a kind of rubber band. Mm-hmm. And this is the way I talk about it with students too. You pull a rubber band back and the whole time you're doing it, you're stretching it out, you're creating length, but you're also creating a tremendous amount of potential energy mm-hmm. that eventually is going to reach a breaking point. That's what happens at the end of major historical movements. We reach, as a people, a breaking point. Now, how does a rubber band snap? Is it nice and just <laughs> falls to the side? No, it's violent, actually. Mm-hmm. And it snaps back hard. And sometimes if it hits your fingers hard enough, you're like, what the heck? Like, jeez, <laughs> right? That's sort of, I think, what's happening now to a degree is that rubber band of postmodernism, that skepticism, has snapped. And we're now in neo-modernism. And, and we can definitely get into the weeds there as well, what I think is the major traits here of neo-modernism. But that, think, of, think of it this way. The skepticism, why I say postmodernism is it has good and bad. The civil rights in America, the major civil rights movement, mm-hmm. takes place in postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And doesn't and that's be- oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, doesn't sort of the uh, not so much development, but the evolution of the scientific method and all of that stuff come from that, where people are questioning what we know and stuff? Isn't that born of that skepticism? You have a tremendous. So we science pulls a lot from from the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Right, an earlier period in the the late 1600s, going into the 1700s. But the the thing that you're keying in on about science and postmodernism is that if skepticism is your main idea, mm-hmm. right, what you go to, you're going to make tremendous strides in science because of skepticism. For mm-hmm. example, you know, somebody said we're never going to be able to split the atom, <laughs> and here comes Oppenheimer, and yeah. they do it like within like months. Yeah, They do it. And so the skepticism for science becomes a kind of challenge. Mm-hmm. What can we do? And, and we're able to do that, right? We can, we'll never be able to go into space. Want to yeah. bet? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, right? You know, postmodern challenge accepted. <clears throat> that kind of a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So the beautiful part of postmodernism is that it, it, because it pushes back against these kind of dominant narratives, big narratives... It says we need to think about other parts of the narrative mm-hmm. and try to highlight them. And thus we get civil rights because we say, but wait a second, what about these people here? Mm-hmm. Let's try to give them a bit of light as well and see how all of the, these dominant narratives are working against them. Mm-hmm. So that's the good here of postmodernism. The bad that people talk about a lot today is that how long can a human being live in a state of pure skepticism? <laughs> before, yeah. you, I mean, before you just sit there and go, can't, can't I believe in anything? <laughs> I mean, is there nothing that I can just say, I believe in this wholeheartedly without someone coming in and saying, yeah, but what you believe in there is, you know, that's not really that great either. It's, mm-hmm. you know, stupid. Yeah, right? there's a lot of that narrative where it's like naivety if you choose to have faith. Yeah faith and even just i mean just in anything right mm-hmm. i love like if someone says i love collecting stamps and that's <laughs> their thing right that's how they they are calm with it there's always someone in postmodernism to say well that's kind of stupid right because all <laughs> you're pointless. doing is yeah that's pointless and this and that and so you have this kind of mockery toward the end of postmodernism 
I'll talk about shows like Family Guy sometimes in class where postmodernism started going wrong. And I laugh at Family Guy. I do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's a particularly interesting example because think of the things that Seth MacFarlane and Family Guy gets us to laugh at. Everything. And it's not, I bring it up in class and I have to always warn my students, this is not about shame. Mm -hmm. You got to trust me. It's not about shaming you. What I'm trying to show you is actually how strong these historical movements are in getting us to laugh at things that are fairly horrific. Mm -hmm. If you just take them out of their context of the show and say, do you find, do you find murder to be funny? Yeah, exactly. Pe people would say, no, of course it's not. No. And yet in postmodernism, late postmodernism, it's able to do that. And it's not about the shame. It's about just recognizing how strong these pulls are. Mm -hmm. That they can get us to laugh at these things. And I laugh. Like I said, I'll laugh too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's, that's really interesting. And, and especially like, I mean, because when, when people talk about that dark humor thing, I've never really thought about the influence of, of skepticism and of that um, sort of, because as soon as you started describing postmodernism, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm totally familiar with the concepts that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I always kind of related it to sort of like coping mechanisms and almost like a, um, like a collective coping mechanisms with these like really dark things that are happening. And that kind of makes sense if you think about how postmodernism started after some of the darkest times that the world mm -hmm. saw. So that's really, yeah. it's really interesting. <laughs> you're, you're onto something here, right? Because modernism, the movement before it, you're talking about, you're dealing with things like the panic, the Great Depression, uh, World War I. Spanish flu. It, Spanish flu. I mean, you're talking about, we, we have that saying that that's the greatest generation, mm -hmm. right? But in, in some ways, you have to acknowledge that it's not like that generation chose to be mm -hmm. that. They were forged out of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a very real thing. So what happens when you're seeing all of these big atrocities and things happening to humanity? Modernism is all about trying to reconsider what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. They're always trying to reconsider. And <clears throat> what they found in modernism was you needed to shrink the space so you don't get a tremendous amount of like big texts in modernism. It's actually more like things like Hemingway and um, Fitzgerald, you know, things that were commonly fairly well known. Those are actually very small stories mm -hmm. about like, here's a, a one person talking to another person. And there's no like major climax, climactic event. And that's because in modernism with things so horrible, it's like what what can we own? Yeah, well, holding, we can own. Holding yes, tight. Yes. Yeah, holding tight to our humanity in the small I, moments. You look to your small inner circle. That's mm -hmm. it. That's all you do. So modernism shrinks everything. Now, I always talk about the rubber band snapping mm -hmm. and what happens. So you can kind of see if you're trying to figure out what is humanity, to reconsider it in modernism. You can kind of see how in postmodernism right after that, they would enter skepticism because if you're shrinking your space to just your family, is your family the same as, excuse me, the same as mine, the same as the next person's? No. So we become skeptical <laughs> mm -hmm. that we can come up with 
any kind of grand narrative that can explain the mm-hmm. human experience. Oh, that's interesting. So sort of the, the rise of like the recognition of tribalism. Like, not so much the rise of tribalism, but the recognition of that. And you're different than I am. And, like, we know it for sure now. Yeah. And now think think about this, too, right? So now we can even, let's say, again, I asked you that question about how long can a human being live in pure skepticism? For me, so. it was about 19 <laughs> years. <laughs> yes, right, right. And get fantastic movies. And <laughs> But how long can you live there in that area, right? So let's let's play our own little game here and say the rubber band of postmodernism living in skepticism snaps we enter into neo-modernism now what is the logical reaction do you think at the end of this idea of living in in total skepticism what do you think we're going to be what we're looking for in neo-modernism I think that we're looking for oh this is fun okay yeah Um, (laughs) I think that we'd be looking for Um, security, again, in those smaller circles, you know, we're looking for that sense of community and that sense of safety because we weren't allowed to love things before. You hit on a lot of them, a lot of really good ones here, right? You mentioned this idea of safety, a re-shrinking again, right? And this this look toward the, the, the three traits that I see that seem to dominate neo-modernism thus far for me. One is we're looking for narrative reassurance. Mm-hmm. We're looking, again, this idea of everyone coming together in, in big groups. Mm-hmm. We're trying to say, let's huddle together and try to actually find something that we can agree with, mm-hmm. right? So that's yeah. one is narrative reassurance. The second thing is we're looking to try to transcend the body, the physical space. We're trying to transcend it to find something that's that's greater than just the, how do I say this? The Like we're looking for oneness almost. Like we're looking for oneness. something that's bigger than, than just our physical existence. And, and because by the end of postmodernism, we did see a lot of, a lot of joking, a lot of humor, a lot of uh, mockery. Mm-hmm. And things. I think we started saying, you know what, I can't just stay on this surface level anymore <clears throat> of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm done with kind of the mockery a little bit. I want to find something that has more meaning. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you need to transcend the world around you, just the everyday things that's happening. Mm-hmm. The final thing, the final trait is we're looking for ways to build sacred space. It totally makes and sense. Absolutely. Because again, it's that idea of I I'm I'm tired of hearing the jokes for everything that nothing has meaning. I can't live in pure skepticism. I have to have some kind of space that's my own. Mm-hmm. That I can say, look, I don't want you making fun of this. This I'm trying to carve out meaning here. And it was more difficult to do that in late postmodernism. Well, what I find really interesting about what you just said is that in some ways, modernism and neo-modernism are similar, and then in Mm -hmm. some ways, they're opposite, right? Because you look at those shrinking of the space, and, you know, in in modernism, it was about enjoying the moment and and just being, and where in neo-modernism, it's about finding that meaning in the small moments. It's about making those small moments big, and that's so interesting. Yes, that's kind of what makes it new, makes it that neo part here is that it shows a lot of traits of modernism 
but it's got to be different enough because it's still a reaction mm-hmm. to postmodernism. Yeah, and it'll still and hold some of those pieces from postmodernism. Absolutely. Yep. And I find every time I see, you know, uh, ar- the arguments and the contentiousness and everything, all I see is you've got a, a group of people trying to transcend. You've got a, another group of people trying to say, this is my, this is our sacred space, right? That kind of thing. And, and both groups trying to say, we're trying to build our narrative here. Mm-hmm. And that narrative becomes sacred to them. And, and that's one of the things that makes it really challenging, I think, mm-hmm. is that we've got these narratives that, like, and I mean, the thing is that, like, the difference between perception and reality is functionally non-existent. Right. And so for these people, you know, group A, this narrative is true because it's it's their experience and it's how they live it. But then on these people over here, this narrative is true, mm-hmm. although it's it's contradictory to the original narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the perpetrate the victim perpetrator dynamic is a perfect example of that is the perpetrator often is a victim themselves in a different narrative. Right. And so, oh, sorry, this is just so interesting. I love no, unpacking these ideas. And you're, you're doing great, too. You're getting right to the <clears> source <throat> here, too, which is you can see how those two things actually cannot be reconciled, really. Right. They're always going to bump heads because they've both designated what they believe to be their narrative. They're reassured by it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's their way of also transcending the sort of mundane world, what we see around us, they find something greater than themselves in it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's that, that idea of, of it's a sacred space. That, and anything that is sacred, you don't just simply defend it. You, I mean, you protect it with your soul. Mm-hmm. And any attack on that sacred space is like an attack on your soul, mm-hmm. which is why so many people are willing to defend it so hard. Mm-hmm. And so much cognitive dissonance comes up. Anything Absolutely. that, yeah, anything that comes like that uh, fights the narrative mm-hmm. is either dismissed or fought. You know, Absolutely. depending on what's available. Now, let me ask you because I'm curious. What do you? Because again, my whole thing is, I, I I try to push back when people say postmodernism is bad. It's like no, it's a movement. Okay, mm-hmm. let's look at it the same way here. Neo-modernism is neither good nor bad. As a species, it's on us to take the good and to kind of shed the the parts that are potentially problematic or won't help us necessarily in the future. So what do you see as the good of neo-modernism thus far? I there's I think so far one of the one of the best things is that it okay, how do I explain this? Okay, so like it's kind of that thing I was talking about with the, you know, taking small things and making them big. I think mm-hmm. that what's going on right now is it's teaching, allowing, however you want to put it, people to create in mm-hmm. in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime and it's really exciting for me, um, is, is like, you know, all the time I'm looking around and I'm seeing more and more creation, more mm-hmm. and more, like, like when I say creation, I mean creativity, not really in the same yeah. way like where science is like we're trying to prove something wrong so much as it's, okay, I see this tiny, tiny thing, whatever it is, I can take from it, like like a really good example is Instagram influencers. Okay, Instagram influencers, one second. <clears throat> sure. Instagram influencers will take the most amazingly mundane sh- stuff and create an entire entertainment empire out of 
you know, them brushing their hair in the morning and singing to themselves or whatever. So you're seeing this like um, realization of potential that mm -hmm. I don't think existed um, in skepticism because in skepticism, you weren't supposed to be interested in someone brushing their hair. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's not, that's not a dominant narrative, right? Like again, like postmodernism will push against the dominant narratives and in neo-modernism, it's about that individual narrative, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the influencers are creating their own sacred space, their own place where they can build and then uh, continually rebuild their own personal narratives as well. And I think you're right that there's something quite wonderful about just the creativity that we're starting to see again, which is, you know, also speaks to that part of us that I think we're looking to transcend a mm -hmm. little bit. We're kind of tired of being just at the level of, of entertainment alone and existence mm. to a degree, right? We need more. And even in the arguments that you see that are sometimes pretty difficult to watch, you know what? I, I would still tell people, find some hope in the arguments because it means that people care. Mm -hmm. And that's important because I'll tell you what, any, any teacher who's worth assault will tell you the one thing that you can't stand is apathy. When the student doesn't care at all, it's, that's that's the worst part. It's so funny because um, I actually had this. I don't know. I, I don't think I talked about it on the show, but I had this conversation about um, what's the opposite of love. And you know, when I was young, I thought it was hate, and then for a while, like I was taught that it was fear. And as I've gotten older, I've come to the conclusion that it really must be apathy, right? I mean the the strongest emotion this overcoming emotion well what's the opposite of that it's it's not it's no emotion yeah you know hate hate and love are right beside each other so yeah that complete and utter disconnect from from feeling in general right like that's that i think and now i'll we'll, we'll go the negative route for a second All right, right? because I'm, again I'm the good it. and the bad let me let me ask you what you think first what do you see as the potential negatives about all of this that we've been talking about in neo-modernism? Um, I would definitely say the, the internet has allowed um, echo chambers to exist to a scary degree. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously not every narrative is going to be dangerous, but I would look at, for example, the uh, involuntary celibate movement and some people who have been validated in their pain and it's not it's not the pain that's the problem, it's the narrative that's accompanied that and has, has, create, has empowered um, dangerous behavior because of that narrative. So I definitely see that yes. in a few areas. Oh, I, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. It's the idea that, the idea, oh, I should, let me say it this way. We can understand the idea behind these feelings, right? It's almost a kind of, it makes sense that someone might feel that way. Mm -hmm. But what empowers them is the narrative of it. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of geek out here for a second because I, I was late. <laughs> yeah. I was late to the, to the party of like, I was taking my time with my wife watching uh, the Mandalorian on Disney plus. Okay, I haven't seen it yet. And, so yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So um, <laughs> no spoilers. Don't worry. What I'll do though is I'll get to the, the, in the last episode of the second season, right? They're fighting over this weapon and there are two characters who want the same weapon. And I thought it was so fascinating that 
the one character said, I can't take it from you. And they're like, why? I'm giving it to you. Right? He, he tries to give the character the weapon mm-hmm. and she won't take it. And somebody else says, it's because it's not the weapon that's important. It's the narrative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought to myself, yes, they're getting it. Sometimes art, I mean, there's nothing better than art in all forms mm-hmm. to really kind of lay out what's happening in a, in a historical movement. They always see it first. Art always sees it first. Mm-hmm. And people love that show because it's a very neo-modern take on heroism. It's simple. It's narrative-driven but the main character is not trying to be postmodern complex. Mm-hmm. I've got one thing to do, and that's it. Yeah, no more brooding, edgy. One thing. And people are eating it up for its simplicity and not the overcomplicated postmodern heroes where everything is a tough decision and, every, and all lines of good and evil are blurred. It's like, no, actually, sometimes we do want to say... This is right. This is wrong. And it's very interesting to see something as big as that show take that kind of neo-modern stance. Mm-hmm. Very interesting to me. That is that is interesting. And uh, I'm like kind of back to something that's, I think, good about neo-modernism is, is that we do have that power in the narrative. So like mm-hmm. as soon as that's recognized, that gives you like, like, like internally for yourself almost almost unlimited power because you realize that it's like if you can figure out how to change that narrative in your mind you can live any life you want you can be a hero or whatever you know and and like i i understand that it can be like annoying for other people when they're like you're not you're not the main character um but at the same time it's like if if that's improving your experience of life why not right you can you can have this yeah No, no, you're, 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 it's, you're absolutely right. This is exciting stuff, honestly. It's very interesting. And, and y- you know, something else, too. Again, this is a kind of a positive of postmodernism, too, which says it's okay to consider the other characters in your story. It's okay. So, like, one, one, um, one lesson I used to give in the classroom is uh, the, the great epic poem, The Odyssey, mm-hmm. right, with the epic hero Odysseus, and it's... I mean, it's in the name. It's his story. Mm-hmm. But there's this character that <clears throat> no one ever talks about, except for me. <laughs> and his name is Elpinor. And I always, yeah, I make the students laugh because I'm like, I'm sure you've all heard the epic story of Elpinor. <laughs> like, the hell is Elpinor? Um, and all this guy is, is he's somebody who got drunk, fell off a roof, and broke his neck. That's it. That's his story. That's Elpinor's epic story in the Odyssey. (laughs) But here's what happens. He's in the underworld. And Odysseus makes his pilgrimage into the underworld. And they meet. And Elpinor is saying to Odysseus, Please, don't forget me. You've left my body unburied. And I'm here because you did not recognize that I was a part of your group and that I died back on I forgot the where they were when he died and that is a a beautiful kind of story mm-hmm. that that Homer throws into this great epic text that should remind us hey guess what there are other people in our story yeah well and I 
Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, go ahead. I think that that's something that's really easy to forget just because of how our brains work, right? Our brains yeah. are like, we have to take care of number one, etc. But I think it's really easy to forget that like other people aren't plot devices. You know, like they, you know, they have their narrative that's going on and we're bumping mm -hmm. into their narrative and, and they are like, you know, if you want to think of yourselves as a book, they're a book too. You know, yeah. they're not just a plot device to move your book forward. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and so we, we ended up, I think, cause we're, we both are pretty naturally like, let's always move toward the positive, right? Mm -hmm. so even though we started this segment <laughs> saying, let's get negative. We both end up moving toward the positive anyway. Okay. No, no, let's get negative. Here. Okay. All okay. right. Cause it's important. So the, the potential negatives of neo-modernism, right, is, is connected to the beauty though. That's why mm -hmm. I think we go there. Because you now have this amazing power of developing the narrative, what happens, what can potentially happen when someone else kind of takes their narrative and bumps into yours? Mm -hmm. what, what do we see? Um, a power struggle often. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's another thing that is, okay, I, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the, you're the, you're the, the teacher man. Um, professor, I guess is the word for that. <laughs> um, I like teacher, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, oh, oh no. Okay, we're talking about narratives. Oh, um, okay, yeah, power struggle. And mm -hmm. I think that because, you know, people are wanting so bad to be allowed to just be and believe in things that we end up maybe overcorrecting. And so you see like a lot of, um, like there's a rise in individuals coming from all sorts of groups, whether it's, you know, I mean, it, traditionally this is a religious thing, but it's outside of religion now too, where you see these sort of leaders rising up and mm -hmm. making a rule book and a narrative. And it's very like sacred cows. Like there's, there's no questioning the narrative. There's no, you know, if, if you question the narrative, then you're either kicked out or you're punished. And, and you're seeing that a lot. I actually did a big post on just seeing that outside, I called it secular religion, um, seeing it coming outside of religion now, where there's these different groups that are doing, you know, like, I mean, I'm not against religion, but there's there's elements of certain, I mean, of a lot of religions that, that have this control element. And I think that, that we are more primed for that than we have been in the past because people so badly want validation, you know, and that's a, an easy source. Yeah, you're seeing, or I should say, we're seeing the the rise of of the public figure even more so, mm -hmm. right? And that's aided, of course, by social media and aided by the ability to have all of our platforms that we do now. But the the potential danger always is that not that you have listeners, but you have like acolytes, you have followers. Mm -hmm. And so every public figure now, if, if they have that level of success, becomes a kind of religion mm -hmm. in of itself, whether they want to believe it or not. And I would, <laughs> I'm not saying that people shouldn't be successful. What, what I am saying, though, is we do have to be very careful about if you do start to see your following grow so much, you might want to have to think about that layer to this actually mm -hmm. at the very least have a spend a night thinking about it like okay do i want followers because on the first day of class right every semester 
And I, next week I'll be doing this. Ooh, I always great. tell, yeah, I always tell the students the same thing. I say, look, I, the world doesn't need, you know, 1940, 60 more versions of me. <laughs> I'm not looking to build a world of, of Joe Myers here. That, that's not going to help the world. It just needs one of me and one of you. That's it. And I say that because I, I want them to understand. I'm going to give you ideas. But I want you to, the, to use the process of learn the idea, put it in your mind, give it language so that it becomes understandable to you. Mm-hmm. Then, rather than react, which is what we're, we're sort of conditioned to do mm-hmm. today, is to have a reaction. Don't. Live with it for a minute. Go out into the world, see how it manifests itself. Take note of it like, okay, I see it there. Then reflect on how you see it and how you think you can use it. If it helps you become the best version of yourself, take it. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, get rid of it. Exactly, yes. Shedding knowledge is something that I talk about a lot with um, when we talk about the, the romantic authors, the dark romantics of like the late 18th, early to mid 19th century. And their whole thing was knowledge is a burden. <laughs> yes, I agree and with that. <laughs> absolutely, right? I, I use the easiest example. Have you ever learned something about a friend that just changed your relationship? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you got rid of them. What I am saying is it forever altered the way you look at that person. Mm-hmm. And that's what the dark romantics believed about knowledge is that it's transformational. Mm-hmm. And, and, and oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no please go ahead. I was going to say, like, I, I feel like secrets are a really, really good example of that burden mm-hmm. is like, like even more so than like something that changed an opinion of a friend is when someone, I don't know if you've ever had this, but someone comes up to you and they blurt something out and they go, oh, by the way, nobody else knows that it's a secret. <laughs> um, that is my nightmare. That's my nightmare. Because like, I, I will I will keep someone else's secret to my grave, but like anyone yeah. who knows me knows I keep no secrets about myself. I hate secrets. I'm bad at mm. them. I can't lie. My memory's crap. Like, <laughs> you know, so I'll, I'll keep other people's secrets, but they, there's no room for my own because I have to keep others because it's such a burden. So Yeah. And it's transformational, right? It changes us, phys- mm-hmm. like even physically in the sense that you feel it, mm-hmm. right? And it's something about that knowledge of knowing you can't go back to a previous time when you didn't know that information. Yeah. Right? That that makes it that kind of immense feeling of of I have changed. You've changed me by giving me that information. So I always try to tell the students, you know, you got to be careful about this. Right? Like it's one thing, it's a beautiful thing for students to come in and be transformed by their experience of learning. Mm-hmm. That's great. We want that actually. We all should be <laughs> yearning for transformation through knowledge. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you have to take everything in and not be aware if it's altering you in a negative way. Mm-hmm. That is a very different thing yeah, that you, students have to be aware of. You have to be discerning about, about yes, what you allow all in. all of us. Not just students, all of us. But I have a question for you then. Sure. Um, okay, so I think we've all come across information that we didn't want at different times. And I mean, obviously, I think, or okay, I shouldn't say obviously, I try not to say that, I say it so much. Um, but I think that it's valuable, you know, for people to learn to be aware of, of what knowledge they're taking in and out. But of course, 
there is almost always inevitably going to be knowledge that you come across that does that. In those mm -hmm. cases, you mentioned shedding knowledge. Do you have any tips on how to do that? <laughs> yeah, here's my tip. It's something that I also kind of use in the classroom that throws them for a loop. I'll ask them, you know, sometime in the first or second week, I'll just, it also helps me learn their names. <laughs> I'll say, you know, whatever, you know, Billy, Billy, are you a good person? And, and, you know, they don't know each other. They don't know me. And they just look at me like they shrug their shoulders, <laughs> and, you know, and I'll start, I'll keep going around the room. I'll ask at three or four. And by the time I get to like, usually that fourth person, they're like, yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> I'm a good person. You know, they get defiant <laughs> that way. And I go, great. How do you know? <laughs> and, and, and they look at me like, oh, this, this guy, <laughs> you know, and the reason why I do that is I say, you have to spend time building up your criteria of what a good person is mm -hmm. before you can say to yourself, I am a good person or I'm not. Now, I'm not saying you build a, a template of what is a good person that is uh, in stone, mm -hmm. you build it in like uh, what like Nietzsche would say, would use this metaphor of like cobwebs, mm -hmm. and he said because a cobweb of course can carry the weight of a spider and like multiple insects, incredibly strong, but a strong enough wind can wipe it away, and then you have to rebuild it again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what you have to do here: is you build. I, I try to encourage my students build up your templates, your criteria for these things. Because then if you know a good person is X, Y, and Z, and that's how I want to try to live my life. If you do something and you put it up against that and you realize, yeah, that's not a good person thing to do. That's okay. We mm -hmm. make mistakes. None of us are perfect. We do things that are, are problematic. Sometimes we're not even always aware of why we did it. But it gives you a chance to Reflect on yourself and say, next time that shows up, I'm going to do it a different way. Mm -hmm. And that is valuable. That's really valuable because when that does happen again and you do make the X, Y, or Z decision, you will feel like you won a war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful moment that, that builds up your, uh, your, your human sort of worth in yourself. And, and I feel like we don't, we don't get a lot of or enough of those. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I uh, I like the spider. I like the spider web analogy a lot. I love spiders. Um, <laughs> well, and because like what's cool about that too is like you know like it could be a strong wind, but other things that can like maybe not knock it down, but like disturb the web. Mm -hmm. You know, are other people coming by and going, hey, actually, like that doesn't work for me or like the wrong spider trying to attach their web to yours. Yeah. Or so the metaphor is really big and I love that. I kinds. like it. I never <laughs> thought about it that way. You're right. How you can, you can almost, you tap on it and the, the web vibrates mm -hmm. and it, it lets the spider know something's happening. Mm -hmm. I got to be aware of it too at the same time, right? So we can be closed off so much in our own templates that we create that people who are trying to tap on our spider web and say, hey, you might be going a bit too far here. You got to be aware of that, like that spider, and you have to take it seriously. People who care about you should be able to push back and make you reconsider something. You may not decide with them at the end, but you got to be open 
to reconsidering. And if, if need be, maybe you take X out and you mm-hmm. put in a new, a new one, something, mm-hmm. you know, you got to be open to these things. Yeah. And, and yeah. And like, and I think, I think also understanding like for me, okay. I get like, I get so many thoughts that go really, really quickly. And then I'm like, oh, I have to catch them. Um, I think one of the things that I find really interesting about that, that template thing and things like that is that sometimes I think people will have like almost the same templates, but then it's semantics, right? So I think that like you were talking about earlier, putting words to the ideas and making sure that you understand it well enough, not only to noodle around with it in your head, but also to be able to share so that if someone comes up and goes, oh, well, XYZ is bad. And you're like, oh, well, actually, we're just speaking a different language, but talking about the same concept. Um, Yeah. Do we want the same thing in the end? In which case, I think it's important that we, we start to acknowledge that sometimes what we're engaging in are just rhetorical wars that mm-hmm. mean nothing. It's like, well, wait a second. Are you anti, you know, someone being murdered? Yeah. Well, me too. <laughs> Can we stop here then and just go get a cup of coffee or something instead? It's kind of a, becomes almost a waste of time. I hate to say that, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get so bogged down. What What I'm seeing, and this has to do, this connects back to, I think, the idea of that narrative reassurance and creating that sacred space is I think that's one of the reasons why we get into these rhetorical battles and we don't have so much conversation or dialogue as we enter a lot of debates Mm -hmm. these days. And debates generally have a winner and a loser. And because of that, normally when I'm, if I'm, (laughs) you tell me if this has happened to you, I'm sure it has. You think you're having a conversation <laughs> and the other person is having a debate. It's like you've and met my sudden, family. <laughs> all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm losing. Oh, <laughs> I guess I have to start thinking like a winner. Oh, all right, I guess. And by that point that I realize I'm in a debate, I'm so over the, the darn thing anyway. I'm like, I don't, you know what? I don't care anymore. That's what I happens. thought we were just having a conversation. That's what happens to me with my family so much. And I like, I love my family. But I'm like, I don't want to argue about this. I don't care. Like I thought, like I thought we were just casually discussing it. Yeah. Now that you're yelling at me, I just need you to understand. I don't care. You can win. I don't care. <laughs> and, and and what I, what I would say to myself about that is, I would say, you got to do a better job of trying to recognize if you're if someone is speaking to their sacred space, or they're building their they're trying to reassure their narrative, right? Because you can build a narrative two ways. You can build up your own narrative as an add to it, mm-hmm. or you can tear down other narratives. And that's how you get ahead. Oh, yeah. Because if you're looking at like a tower, exactly. Yeah, you want the tallest and tower, you can build on your tower, you can absolutely. destroy others. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes we see a lot more of the tearing down of someone else's narratives in order to get ahead, as opposed to just building up our own. Either way, I would tell myself, try to recognize if someone is speaking from their sacred space because if that's the case the best thing that you can do is just listen mm-hmm. and go okay yeah i get that that makes you know that makes sense i understand and as opposed to trying to attack it with your own two sacred spaces trying to attack goes nowhere today mm-hmm. nothing it's just an argument that's it and nobody's learning anything nobody's getting better it really is. That's that's maybe one of the most negative things that I see well, in neo-modernism is that. 
And that, that totally makes sense to me. And I think that, I actually think that that's partially at least a holdover from, from the previous period. Hmm. Um, because I look at the whole principled stances definitely existed in postmodernism. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> because I, I was born in 89 and principled stances were absolutely huge when I was a kid, right? Where it's like, it doesn't even really matter the facts or the consequences. Nothing matters except for the principle of the matter. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's so bizarre to me. That's very much a piece of that narrative is building these principles and these rules that the, the expectation is everyone, um, everyone behave by these rules, regardless if they know them or not. And it's so interesting because like in the last couple of years, I've started to sort of pull it apart, but I've noticed that they exist very strongly now, just a little differently, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I was just like, Oh, that's yeah, no, what you're, what you're feeling there, right. Is, you might get people people who will say, yeah, but you know what? Um, there were very strict rules and, and things like that in post-modernism, postmodernism as well. And you're right. There are people who are within a movement who can feel it happening and they will try to secure what they can. So it makes complete sense that you would have kind of these, these um, what do you call it? You called it a prin- principled... Principled kind stances. Principled stances, right? Because those people, I would argue, are, are feeling that sort of postmodern chaos and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to instead try to create a, a space where I can just have my principled non-postmodern chaotic space. Mm-hmm. And so seeing the opposite of a movement doesn't mean that the movement doesn't exist. It actually just reaffirms that we feel the pull of that movement, mm-hmm. right? Then, that kind of thing. <laughs> this, yeah, because we have sub-movements within hip major historical movements, right? The, the hippie movement in America comes out of, it's a counterculture, mm-hmm. meaning that they said, we, we see this dominant narrative of culture. We want to be counter to it. That's a very postmodern thing to do. We're skeptical <laughs> of that dominant culture. It makes sense, you know? Oh, that's fantastic. That's, I just... Yeah. I'm, I get really excited when I learn new things and then I freeze up. Um, but yeah, like that totally makes sense. And, and the principled stances thing totally makes sense that that's, you know, a, a counter to that. Cause like I said, I mean, I'm just talking like, I don't know, someone cuts you off in traffic and then mm-hmm. you later find out that they had a reason for cutting you off in traffic, but you're mad because it's the principle of the matter. That's, you know, this, this weird thing where it's like, it doesn't matter if they had a good reason, they shouldn't be doing that. And, <laughs> and, and like I said, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that that like, and again, that's a piece of the narrative or an extension of the narrative is honestly, I think one of the biggest prisons that humans put ourselves in is these like, I refuse to look at it any deeper because it doesn't fit the rule. Um, so I just yeah. Yeah, I find that interesting that it flows through the, but I think humans are just inherently contrarian, you know, so we will always have people pushing against just because there's something to push against. I think, I think you have people who are very sensitive sometimes to any kind of dominant narrative in general. And it, it, it makes them uncomfortable to think that any one thing could be it. Right, because we want to be open to mm-hmm. being able to change. We want to be open to be able to evolve, right? And that that can sometimes be a very good thing, right? Because, like I said, you can look back in history and you can find these like 
novels and short stories and poems and all these different things that are counterculture within the dominant culture. And we only know it by looking back like a hundred mm-hmm. years later that it's like, oh, this person was talking about modernism back in romanticism. And it's because they feel this kind of yearning or this kind of pull that's happening. And they don't, either they don't like it or they're uncomfortable with it, or they just think it's, it's, it's problematic to, to be a part of something that seems so all-encompassing, right? Because mm-hmm. that's sort of what's happening now too, is people are, they don't even realize it necessarily. They're molded by this neo-modernism. And there's something that feels so right about it because you're a part of the largest part of humanity at this point. Mm-hmm. And yet I would argue, look, be aware of it, be aware of the pull that's there, but you got to also, again, be aware of what it's doing to you. Mm-hmm. Is it bringing out the best version of yourself mm-hmm. or not? Sometimes, I, again, these arguments that I see, I read online or I hear, and I just think to myself, I don't buy that that person is happy making that stance. I don't buy it. And yet I can understand why they feel so blanketed, like comforted, comforted by being a part of a, of a big movement of people that believe in something so strongly, there's a pull to that too, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, where it's like we were talking about before, like safety, you know, yeah. there's, there's a sense of security in numbers and knowing that like, you know, you're not going to be ostracized because you're part of the majority and stuff like that. And you're right, it's absolutely dangerous in the right or wrong context. Um, and it gets really scary. But before before we move to the game, um, because I just noticed that <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. Um, before we move to the game, can you let people know where they can find you or like perhaps hear your podcast or, you know. <laughs> sure. Yes, uh, my podcast is called The Neutral Ground Podcast. And uh, you can find it at theneutralgroundpodcast.com. You can find me on Apple, Spotify, all that, that stuff, you know. Um, and basically the podcast is about getting people out of the extremes, what I've talked about here, and getting people onto a neutral ground where we can just talk, just have conversations, forget the debates. I don't want to win anything. I just want to have conversations and give people kind of a, a calm place where they can just ask questions and we can just kind of talk about, about life. That's it. And you know what I love about that? Sorry to cut you off. Sure. Um, (laughs) What I love about that is I think from a neutral ground is where you can truly find yourself because we get so buried in the extremes and, and we all do me too. Like, I mean, obvious or maybe maybe it is obvious um i'm a little bit you know optimistic and stuff like that and i know it frustrates people uh because <laughs> they're like okay do you see the world around you and i know that neutrality is a lot better for me too is my point is that it helps to really find yourself when you're not buried in other people's narratives yeah i could see that I, but i would also say you can't look to two things that we need at all times you need hope and you need purpose all times you cannot get around that as a human being and hope comes a lot of times ex- from the exterior. So if you're optimistic, you never you never know how many times you're giving people hope that they needed. Oh, I love so that. I would say don't don't run away from that. You can come on the neutral ground anytime you want. Be neutral if you want, <laughs> but when you leave, be optimistic and be hopeful. We all have to be because honestly, look the truth is there are reasons to be hopeful. 
You know, humanity is not all bad. It's not. We can't I, buy into that. You just, you can't. I fully agree. I guess what I was referring to is I can sometimes err too far. If I err on sure. either side, it's, yeah. it's a little too far. And people are like, are you blind? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Understandable. <Yeah. laughs> but I, I fully agree. I mean, oh, I, I mean, I can honestly say the only reason I'm alive is because of hope, you know? And I think that that's true of most people. Like, mm-hmm. without that, this stuff's way too hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> without you the belief, be... it'll get better. Yeah, and life life will give you suffering. And it's going to give you pain. You don't have to look for it. <laughs> it's going to happen. So true. So in the meantime, try to be in a space of hope. Try to be there as much as you can. Because uh, as my favorite author, Herman Melville, said... You know, eventually you're gonna get, you're gonna feel the universal thump, is what he called it, and it comes around for everybody. And you're gonna want that buildup of hope that you've been holding on to. That is th- okay. I'm a little emotional all of a sudden. That's so beautiful. Oh. <laughs> well, um, I mean it. It's true. It is. Okay. So, okay. I'm cool. I'm cool. Are you ready to play a game? <laughs> yes. Let's play a game. All right. You are going to be guessing 1940 slang that are bygone terms. Which okay. is perfect because you very clearly know a lot about history. So <laughs> let's hopefully. see if I know this though. <laughs> All right, what is an anchor cranker? <laughs> someone, someone who who lies a lot to you about nonsensical things. <laughs> that would be fantastic, but it's just a sailor. Oh, <laughs> oh no, I got that one wrong. <laughs> All right, what? is a popsicle and it's not a popsicle (laughs) i was gonna say (laughs) oh boy popsicle um someone who is uh very attractive like it's a a, you're attracted to that figure that's a popsicle (laughs) (laughs) i always love the guest answers so much more than the actual ones it's a motorcycle Same thing. Yeah, no. Yeah, basically yeah. the same thing. Beautiful person, <laughs> motorcycle. A motorcycle, yeah. Um, sure. What is floy floy? That's so much fun oh, to say. No. Are you sure that's not one that young kids are using today? It sounds uh, like it. Floy it does floy. a little floy floy. <laughs> um, floy floy. That's great. It means that's awesome. It means it's nonsense. Uh, that's just a oh. bunch of floy floy. <laughs> I am very good at coming up with the opposites here. Yes. All right. <laughs> I'm going to do two more. Sure. What is khaki wacky? I love how much of this rhymes. Khaki <laughs> wacky. Um, it's like, I'm going to go positive again. It's that, that's like the, the greatest thing in the world. It means khaki to, be, wacky. to be boy crazy. Oh. Like, don't mind Sarah. She's just khaki wacky. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and we're gonna do one more. Let's see. Oh, that one's not archaic. Um, going fishing. Oh, I'm, I'm going. I'm going fishing. Means I'm like checking out. I'm. I'm not. I'm not like. Um, I'm not all there. I'm not present right now. I'm going fishing. I'm out of this. I actually might start using it that way, but it means looking oh. for a date. <laughs> So oh, really? plenty of fish clearly knew that one. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you're oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> oh man, this has been so much fun. Is there anything you wanted to add before we say goodbye to the audience? 
Uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful podcast. I, I think you're doing really, you know, a lot of good. I mean that. So uh, I thank you very much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. And I did want to make a correction. I believe it's Dr. Joe Meyer, right? Sure. I apologize yeah, for that. but that's okay. Really? I no, no. It, and then you're like, my PhD. And I was like, oh, my God, I knew that. No, no, <laughs> no. Hold on. I was, I was born into this world, Joe. I'm going to leave this world, Joe. <laughs> and the doctor just happens in between. So really, right, don't well, worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> just so everyone knows, I, I did remember before well, the show ended. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Joe. And, <laughs> and uh, to my audience, I love you. Bye.